Like a master jeweler displaying his masterful work, God displays the transformed lives of his children. In this episode, we look at the incredible gift of the gospel and what God has done for us. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. So if you guys have, uh, I know you ladies will know about Tiffany and Company. Tiffany and Company is a famous famous uh, jewelry company, little, I don't know, turquoise box, I guess you could call it. Um, Tiffany Blue. Tiffany Blue. <laughs> My mistake. Wow. Okay. Only Johnny, yes, Johnny Aubrey are the ones that correct me. Excellent. Um, but the thing that makes Tif- Tiffany uh, so well known and so expensive is that they have done a brilliant job of branding themselves, right? Um, you see that little Tiffany blue box. Ooh, apparently I don't know my jewelry. Yeah, listen, I'm a trim carpenter, so I don't think I've ever been in a Tiffany company. Um, the, uh, but one of the things that has set them apart is their marketing, right? You, you know, if you see the little Tiffany blue box, somebody has spent some money, some big time money, right? Um, but something that's interesting is that when it comes to all jewelry, there are designers, okay? Someone, in fact, this is one of the oldest occupations in the world, jewelry design, okay? And one of the things that, that Tiffany has done um, masterfully is that in their showrooms, they have uh, gallery designers come in and th- their one job is to fix the lighting in a way to where the diamonds shine and it makes things look more beautiful, right? They bring out the, the, the natural beauty that's in the, in the jewelry. Same thing is true, We've been, we have been looking at this idea of grace, God's grace and his plan for the world, okay? So think about a piece of jewelry. You have a designer who, who has a concept in their mind, something that they wanna make, so they, they create this piece of art, then that piece of art has been placed in a display, and that display has been um, illustrated in a way to capture people's attention. This is a picture of what God has done in all of creation. We've been talking about the significance of His grace, right? Grace is the foundation of all things. The grace is um, the foundational element of creation. I'm not really good at writing today, apparently. Um... We talked about, you know, in another illustration, that grace is like carbon, right? Carbon is the, the basic element of all living beings. Um, grace is the basic element of all relationships. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father set out from the foundation of the world to display their character. And they did that by highlighting grace. So they have come up with this divine plan, this scheme, to show all of, all of creation exactly who they are. So they... They, um, they architected this plan. It was something we've been talking about for the last several weeks. We, st- we looked at first that, that Paul in the first uh, chapter of Ephesians says that there is this, um, this architected um, roadmap that God has given us to show who He is. That we have access to spiritual blessings through Christ. That we have, um, we have the opportunity to, to take part in what He's doing through displaying grace through our own lives. And, and then Paul, in the last part of chapter, chapter 1, he's, he's praying that the church at Ephesus would have this divine perspective to be able to see all of these things that God has done in the cosmos. 
that he says, God's already given you a, um, a spirit of confidence. He's given you spiritual blessings from Christ that are from heaven. Um, the ability to bear spiritual fruit, the, bear, the, the ability to be able to use spiritual gifts, and also the, the supernatural empowerment to be able to do good deeds, the deeds that will, that will augment and show off God's grace. And he allows us to be a part of that, that picture. In these first 10 verses of chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning, what he's going to do is he's going to show not only who we were, but also who we are today. So our past, our present, and our future condition. Um, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be, do the first 10 verses. So Paul begins in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So after Paul has detailed all the authority and power that God has and Jesus Christ has in creation, that God architected this plan, that the Spirit, um, uh, that, that the Son uh, executed the plan, and then the Spirit came along and illustrated the plan and is, an, is in a constant state of showing who God is and what His grace is. Paul now moves to showing us that we're completely, we were completely without hope and we were absorbed in our corruption before Jesus injected Himself into our lives. So this is something that we need to, to understand, that God takes those who are experienced in working wickedness, being separated from Him, and he not only saves them, but he also transforms them to perform deeds of righteousness. Now, if you've grown up in a middle-class, Midwestern home, more than likely um, you have not gotten into so much trouble that you know exactly your heart condition. You probably think you're a pretty good person. Scripture tells us that all of us are broken. All of us are separated from God. In fact, we're gonna, as we dig through this text, we'll start to notice exactly why God gave us the plan that he did. But the reality is that before we knew Christ, we were completely disconnected from God, which means we were completely disconnected from access to all things that are good. He says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these first couple of verses, look at this in verse, verses 1 through 3. He says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. The literal meaning of the word for dead in Greek is to be destitute of life, without life, or inanimate. It means to be completely disconnected from any source of goodness. Um, and when God interrupted our lives, He essentially not only um, brought us to life, but He gave us all animation. So think about this. That when we are separate from God and His grace, not, all, not only are we dead, um, we have no ability to have life. The world only provides a counterfeit to everything that God provides. 
God provides true life, true hope, um, a true future. But absent from Him, there is no hope, there is no life, there is no future. He says that before we knew Him, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. The, de- the definition for uh, transgressions here means to fall beside or near something, or to have a lapse of or a deviation from the truth and righteousness. It implies a willful separation from the path of God. So if you, if you consider that God has, has prescribed a way for us to live that is not only going to be beneficial for us, not only is it going to be the right way for us to live, but it is going to be the most fulfilling way. Use this example, okay? If you take a flat-headed screwdriver and a hammer and you use that flat-headed screwdriver as a chisel, it may work in some applications depending on how rough your finished product wants to be. But it's not what the screwdriver was made for. Eventually it'll wear out and it'll break because it's not being used in the way that it was designed to be used. In the same way, we are uh, like that. That God has designed us to be in relationship with Him, to know Him, to walk in righteousness, to walk in truth. But when we live in a way, when we choose to operate in a way that is deviant from His path, that's different from what He's designed us for, it is naturally corrupting for us. So when he says that we are dead in our transgressions, not only are we, are we inanimate and lifeless, but also we have got to make the, the, the understanding that we have chosen on purpose to deviate from God's plan. He says that we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. The word sin in Greek, you might be familiar, literally means to miss the mark. It's in the conscious decision to deviate from God's path that we find ourselves disconnected from our purpose. Have you ever wondered why people in the world, and even we ourselves sometimes, find ourselves always feeling like we're missing something? It's because we have an innate need for godliness. And when we choose to live ungodly lives, what happens is we grow unsatisfied. Because we cannot find satisfaction in ourselves. One of the big things in our culture today is is that our culture tells us to live our truth to speak our truth, to know our truth. But according to what God's Word says, apart from Him, we don't even comprehend truth. And so he says that we are separated from Him. We're missing the mark. We made this conscious decision to get off of the path that we were designed to walk. But Paul reminds the Ephesians that they formally walked according to the course of this world. This is something that they used to do. He says that they they used to walk Uh, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What he's saying here is that the lost souls um, who continue to serve their own sinful desires one day will find themselves to realize that they have been running with the wrong crowd, if you will. One of the most significant offenses that we can conduct, actually, in our lives as children of God is continuing to live as a lost person when we proclaim the name of Christ. When we say, oh, well, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And then we turn around and we live reprobate lives and we choose on purpose to walk counter to the path that he's given us. And here's the thing that's really difficult to understand or to accept. Is that ignorance is not an excuse for disobedience. We can't get to heaven and be accountable to God when he says, you did this, you did this, you did this. I gave you my grace and my mercy and you threw it away and you made it common. Well, Lord, I didn't, I didn't know that I was supposed to do that. I didn't know that I was supposed to, to live justly. 
I didn't know that I was supposed to be kind to people. I didn't know that I was supposed to share the hope of the gospel with people. I didn't know I was supposed to make disciples. When did you say that? When did you, do, when did, when did you give us that commandment? And he will, he will turn to his word and he will say, I told you from the beginning what this was about. And you made a conscious decision to not live it. There are going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day when God holds them to account who claim ignorance and they find themselves in a place where they do not want to be. We have to remember that God has chosen to work in us. And when we choose to live a reprobate life, when we choose to live according to our sinfulness instead of the way that God has told us to live, we will find ourselves um, at odds with God. Imagine. James tells us in, in chapter 4 of his book to the churches that, that the spirit that's in you yearns jealously. Why is there contention in your life? Why are you praying for things and not receiving them? Why, why are you upset at, at each other? Why are you fighting with one another? It's because you are praying for things to consume them on your own pleasures. You don't, you don't have a kingdom perspective. You're praying for your own desires. Even if those desires are comfort, you may not be praying for a Lamborghini in the driveway in a giant house. You may be just be praying for God to give you a life of ease to try to avoid the gospel responsibility of sharing the goodness of who God is. You may be praying that you don't have to see that person that's difficult in your life because they make you feel yucky. This is not a kingdom perspective. And so what does God do? He doesn't answer those prayers. He provides contention in your life because we are choosing to live contrary to the way that he's designed us to live. One of the things that I have found in my short time here on earth is that when contention is present in my life, it is proof that I am, in, I am doing something in rebellion to God. There is something in my life that, that's happening, something that God is trying to draw out from me, some fleshliness, some sinfulness that is, that is directing my attention away from Him. Remember, what God does is He is a masterful surgeon that as we live our lives, as He sanctifies us, He exposes these parts of our life that are dangerous, not just for us, but for the people that we love and care, that we care about. And so slowly he begins to draw these imperfections out of us. He provides the heat that will, that will push the dross to the top so that he can skim it off the top and make us more pure. And so when we, when we make decisions to live in a way that is counter to what he has told us to do and counter to what he has how he's told us to live, we can't be surprised when we find contention. Think about what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another in order to keep you from doing what you want. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But we don't live the way that the world lives. We don't live according to the flesh anymore. We live according to what God has prescribed for us. He says, uh, he continues to say that we formally live this way. And we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of our flesh and of the mind. He says that by nature we were children of wrath. That is, that we were children at war with God. Imagine if we tried to stand against the armies of heaven and what God was trying to do. What kind of contention we would, that would meet us? The language here in verse 3 means not only that we were captivated by our sinfulness, but that in our mind, we were completely absorbed with our wickedness. The idea is that when we were lost, when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, not only did we not have any capacity for good, but we were absorbed in our own selfishness. That this is the only thing that we cared about. 
is a comprehensive uh, obsession. We were created, we are, not only were we absorbed in, but we were creative in our rebellion against God. And we actively sought out ways to act out that rebellion. We, we tried to find ways to work against God. What's incredible to me is that I have been a teenage kid. I've been a teenage boy. And it's incredible how creative you can be when, you, when your heart is set towards sin. There can be all kinds of blockers, all kinds of, all kinds of uh, protections you can put in place. But a sinful mind is a creative mind. So what Paul is saying here, that in our sinfulness, not only are we drawn to it, not only are we absorbed to it, absorbed with it, but we are creative in how we express it. That we can, we can find all kinds of ways to commit sin, to be in rebellion against God, and then to cover it up. Man. We're getting to, we're getting to some hope here, so don't get too depressed yet. Verse 4, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Now remember, the theme of all of this is God's mercy. That God's mercy is this gem that He's put on display. That God has, in, in essence, He has created the world as this giant glass display case. And He has affixed the light, the Word, Jesus Christ, to shine perfectly on grace. So that no matter what angle we look at grace we begin to see its beauty and its wonder. This is a core characteristic of who God is. That's why he says, okay, this is who we were, that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, but God who is rich in mercy. Remember, God who is the one who wanted to put his grace on display. But God, remember, he's, he's not making lemons, lemonade out of lemons. He is actively working all things together for our good and for his good. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, consider this. That in spite of our rebellion and our warfare against God, even when we are his children, he's rich in mercy. Why? Because he is, has a great love for us. He looked down from heaven to see us through the lens of his divine will and he had compassion on us. That he would, that he would love us so much that he would create all of these obstacles, that he would create all of this environment for us to live in just to show us how much he loves us, just to illustrate how much of grace he, he, he wants to give us. We have this mindset that's, that, that, that's wrong, that we think, okay, God's powerful enough to save me, but he's not powerful enough to love me when I'm his child and I'm in sin. But that's not the way that God looks at us. God has one expectation of you, and that's that you will walk in sin, that you will rebel against him, but think about it this way, that even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when you were separated from him, when you were willfully absorbed in your evil, even when you were creative in your sinfulness and rebellion against him, that he loved you and he died for you. Now that you're his child, does anything change? If he could love you that way, when you're actively in rebellion against him, how much more do you think that he loves you as his child? How much more do you think that he wants to give you grace now that you're his child? Now that you are in his family, now that you are walking with his other children and you have community with them. He wants to richly, lavishly pour his grace over you because he is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. He had compassion on us. He, he not only he saved us, but he also made us alive together with Christ. 
It's through this natural display of His grace and the expression of His mercy that we have been saved. But it's not just that. It would be significant for, for God to forgive us and allow us to be in relationship with Him. Yes, that would be awesome. But the God who's rich in mercy wouldn't stop there. He wouldn't just say, okay, great, I've saved them. Now I've got them in the queue. They're going to go to heaven, so they're going to be with me. I'll let them be. He's not this cosmic watchmaker who winds things up and lets them go. He is intimate in our lives. And He wants to know us, and He wants us to know Him. Why would He do that? Paul goes on to say that He raises up His children to be with Him, and He sees them to be with Christ in heavenly places. These are the same heavenly places that are the source of, this, of these spiritual blessings that God gave us that Paul talked about in chapter 1. So God gives us this down payment of heaven through spiritual gifts, through, uh, through spiritual fruit, and through the, 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 the privilege of being able to take part in the gospel with Him so that in the fullness of time, in the ages to come, we would not just, not just know Him and walk into heaven with some context, but we would be right at home. One of the things that, that is profound here is that when God reveals our sinfulness to us now, that brings conviction, right? It brings contrition. We, we, we feel bad about what we've done as we've been rebelling against Him. We do that because we are still broken. We're still in this broken situation in the age that we're in presently. I don't think that when we get to heaven, we are going to forget about our sin. I don't. Why? Because I think that when God reveals our sinfulness to us, it's an illustration of His grace. Right now, when He reveals our sinfulness... We feel terrible because we're in rebellion against Him and we make ourselves right. We, we repent and we turn away from our sin and we chase after Him. But think about it this way. We don't even know the fullness of our rebellion against God. So He has confronted us with our rebellion right now. That's led to repentance and salvation. But for eternity, God will be able to show us all of the ways that we have rebelled against Him. But in heaven... There will be no conviction. In heaven, there will be no contrition because He's going to wipe every tear from our eye. He's going to make all things right. And so what now is a, is, a, is a moment of contrition and guilt for eternity turns into an everlasting revelation of God's mercy and grace. That He's able to say, hey, remember this time that you did this? Remember this time when you gave your heart to yourself or to your sinfulness? I was there to meet you with grace. And for eternity, we begin to know and unpack. And God still highlights His grace even for eternity. So that He would raise us up so that we would know Him. Not just in the ages present, but in the age to come. Look at what it says. That He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in the kindness towards all of us. In what? In Christ Jesus. In other words, for the rest of eternity, God is going to be displaying His children. He's going to be talking about the things that He has done in our lives. He continues to go on. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. It's through grace that He holds all creation together. We've not earned His love, His compassion, or His grace. What happens is God, who's rich in mercy, He's rich in grace, He not only sees us in our rebellion, but He has architected the plan to illustrate His goodness to us. And so He looks at us. He looks at our brokenness. He looks at all of the things that are, that are, that are 
enveloping our life. And he doesn't just look down on compassion. It says in Romans that he literally groans within himself watching us. Have to endure the plan. Having to endure the test. It's difficult. There, um, there was a time in my life when I was really involved in the martial arts. And one of the elements of being in the martial arts is that you have a test that comes regularly. Some of you have done this before, where you're in the middle of the test and you're up against the clock and you, your job is to survive. Be present. Don't give up. Keep your hands up. And you sit there and you endure. It's one thing to be in the fight. It's another thing to be the teacher, the sensei, watching your student go through the struggle of the test. You know their heart. You know their will. You know that they are committed to it. You know that they're struggling. You know that they're weak. You know that they're tired. And you know that they're injured. And yet, with all of your being, you can't step in and say, I'll do it. They must go through the test. Same thing is true with our children. Same thing is true with our spouses. There may be things that you are going through or that your spouse is going through that you want to step in and you want to save them. But one of the hardest things that you can find in your marriage is watching your your loved one suffer while God teaches them who He is. So our prayer is not selfish. We don't pray that God would take away the struggle because the test is there on purpose. Instead, we thankfully say, Lord, thank you for this test. James chapter 1, thank you for this trial. But please give me perspective. Give me wisdom. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. I don't want to jump out of this, this, this test too soon because I don't want to rob myself or rob my, my spouse of the richness of who you want to show them that you are. God is rich in His grace and His mercy. And so what He does is He watches us go through these things. He's, he, he watches us live out this plan that He has architected for our lives. And He's not ignorant. He's not, he's not up there um, you know, rubbing His hands together, gleefully watching us suffer. Romans chapter 8 says that he groans within himself. That, the, that, the, that the, the Son, Jesus, advocates for us because he has walked where we have walked. That the Spirit advocates for us because he was with Christ when he walked on earth. That the Father, he also prays for us. That in community there was this divine conversation happening over and over and over, nonstop. And the gift that he's given us in prayer is that we actually get to, get to take part in that conversation that we get to frame our lives according to what He is already uh, talking about for us. So we don't live according to the flesh. We don't live according to our despair. We live according to what God has for us and what He has architected for us. He says that the kindness of God is illustrated most strongly in grace. That this grace holds everything together. It says that through this expression of grace that He saves us. But that grace and, and salvation are just the beginning. It's through the expression of this grace that He saves us and and that He continues to give us these gifts, these good gifts. One of the things that is also hard to to acknowledge is that we don't even contribute our own faith to our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 12, turn over there if you will. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It tells us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. What does that mean? It means that He is the beginner and the sustainer of our faith. 
Starting in verse 1, he says, um, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. These words here where it says Jesus is the author and the perfecter, it means that Jesus believed first. That Jesus is the, is the one who had faith first. Think about what Paul says in Romans, that, he, that, that, um, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ had this, this confidence in himself. That he believed first. He believed that we would choose him. And so he gives us that same faith. The faith that we have that leads to our salvation is not even ours. We don't contribute anything. He's the initiator. He's the sustainer of all faith. That he's the one who believed first. And it's his faith in his natural characteristic of grace that makes a way for us to be saved. Which is why he died for us first. So Paul, going back to Ephesians, Paul says that we can't take any credit for what God has done. That he has he supplied this as a gift. It's not of works. We can't earn this. We can't, we can't achieve this. In other words, what this means is that God's restricted our participation in our salvation for the simple fact that he can illustrate his grace. But notice something here. That God is also the one who elevates others. Philippians 2 tells us that he elevates himself. He elevates Christ. But he also elevates others. When I was a, at a, I can't remember, I think it was a black belt test, our head sensei told a story. Many, many of you have heard this illustration. That when people look at you, if you're chasing Jesus, they will see a turtle on a fence post. They'll make two observations. One is that you don't belong where you are. And number two, you didn't get there by yourself. Why is that? That had a profound impact on me because I began to realize that as I chase Jesus, God elevates me. But I don't chase Jesus to be elevated. I chase Jesus because in him I find satisfaction. There are some people who wrongly and pervertedly take the gospel and they use it to build their own platform. That is a perversion of what God has intended. God raises up people who will illustrate his grace to everyone around them. If this world, if all of the cosmos, if all of the created order has been made as, as, a, as an illustration, as a, as a platform to be able to display God's grace, that means that as we begin to chase Jesus, God is going to raise us up to be illustrations of how mighty and wonderful He is. We can't take credit for the things that only God can do. So what is our world chase? Our, our world chase is all of the things that are going to show how great we are. Oh, I'm a hard worker. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I'm so fit. Oh, I get so much done. Oh, I've got this accolade. I've got this degree. I've got, I've got all of these things that stack up and make me feel and look awesome. All that's garbage. Next to the singular focus, the singular purpose of the people of God, which is to illustrate His grace. A godly person is built on a steady diet of humble pie. We need to remember that God is doing something profound in us. And when he calls us to live a certain way, it's not just because he wants us to, to hem us into a little box and make us live like little slaves. It's because he wants to show and spread his goodness through all the world. 
So what happens when we choose to not live that way? We are making the conscious decision to prevent people from experiencing God. When we choose to not live the way that God designed us to live, we are making the conscious decision to prevent people from experiencing God. Man, how terrible is that? Look at this last verse. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God illustrates His grace through us, and He allows us to take part in the mission of making His name known. This word workmanship is, in, is important. There's only one other place that this word is used in the Bible, and that's in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 Paul is talking to the Roman church and he is giving an illustration of how God has presented himself to the world. And it says this. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The things that are made that he references in verse 20 is the same word here that he uses in Ephesians 2.10 as workmanship. So Romans 1 tells us that God has displayed Himself to the world in two ways. One is through the natural complexities of the world, creation. Whether you zoom down into the micro level and you look at the internal parts of a cell, down to the atom, to the cork, or to the element, you see God there. If you look at the macro level and you take a telescope and you zoom into all of the cosmos, into, the, into, the, into space, you will see God there as all the planets and the stars and the galaxies are swirled into order. That's one way that God has presented Himself. The second way that He's presented Himself is through the things that are made. His workmanship. He's talking about you. He's talking about the life that you live. God has made Himself obvious to the world through you. That while we were still sinners, He died for us. Yes, while we, while we were alone and we were separated from Him, while we were walking against, against Him off of the path that He had chosen for us, in the richness of His mercy, He saved us, but then He also displays us to the world to show them who He is. Again, when we choose to not live the way that God chose for us to live, we are preventing people to know Him. We are selfishly holding on to something and we are perverting grace. And we are showing just how sinful we really are. Because the mind of God, the will of God, is to display His grace to the world, openly, as far as we can go. It is against His nature to hide His grace. He has made it obvious. He goes on to say that, that His workmanship was created in them, in Christ Jesus, in good works. That is to live as expressions of His, of his nature in a fallen world. In fact, the name Christian, when it was first applied to our people, means little Christ. So people were taking on this moniker of saying, yes, these little Christ, these little Christ followers, these Jesus followers. That our lives are meant to be, I don't know if you guys ever did this in school, where you made a diorama. You take an old shoebox, you take a bunch of little things, and you make a little scene. That's what your life is supposed to be. Your life is supposed to be a diorama that shows 
who God is, his, the goodness of his grace, his mercy. Why else would we respond to hardship with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Because the fruits of the Spirit are a supernatural response to the hostility that the world has against God's grace. As we display, as we respond in these ways, what happens is that that testimony puts grace on display. And God elevates us. This is how the church is built. It's not through dynamic words. Even Paul said he was insecure about his ability to teach. It's not through a cunning argument. It's not through trying to persuade someone because of their political opinion. It is the simple, just, humble life of a follower of Christ that changes the world. In the first century, when Christians were dragged off to be murdered in the Colosseum, their neighbors would look and they would hear the accusations against their, 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 the people that lived next to them and how kind they were, how just they were, how loving they were, and how peaceful they were. And the, the state would say all, this, all of the evil things about them. And they would go in their mind and they would, they would say, wait a second, that's not true. I know that person. Their reputation, their life was their testimony. The most significant thing that you can do as you are living your life is to display God's goodness. But we've got to make the conscious decision to live that way. We've got to be uh, His workmanship, and we're doing good works. This is the third part of what He talked about in the first chapter, um, being spurred into good works. Notice that He has prepared these beforehand so that we would walk in them. The decisions that are made about the priorities that we have as believers, they shape the way that the world sees God. Remember, your theology is the most basic thing about you. If you have an opinion about God, you're a theologian. How you see God is how you see the world. But here, let's take this one step further. How you see God will show the world how to see God. If you dismiss Him, the world will dismiss Him. If you take Him seriously, the world will take Him seriously. If you profane His grace, if you, if you abuse His grace, the world will think that they don't need forgiveness. How we see God is how we see the world, and how we see God will also teach the world how to see Him. And it's important for us to understand this. If we are lackadaisical in the way that we live our faith, if we are dismissive about reading His Word and knowing Him and having perspective about the world, we are actively teaching our generation to disregard God. Why should you read your Bible? So that you could know God? Absolutely. But also, so that the world, the, the world that touches you in the circles that you run in, they would experience God as well. Why do we come to church? Why do we, why do we have community with each other? Because it's good for us? Yes. But Hebrews tells us because it's commanded of us to be together. Because that's where we draw, draw strength from, so that we can spur each other towards faith, love, and good works. We don't just do these things because they are fun for us. We do them because this is the, this is the path that God has, has laid for us. But we've got to remember that how we, how we treat these things, how, we, how, how serious we are about godly things is going, to, is going to have an eternal impact, not just in our life, but to everybody around us. There will be ripple effects to every relationship that we touch. Last thing I want to point out here in verse 10. We're His workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But if we make the conscious decision as a child of God 
to refuse to live this way, we stand in rebellion against God. And there will be contention in our lives. There will be division in our lives. There will be relationships that are troublesome in our lives. And I'm not talking about the natural uh, agitation between godly people and sinful people. There will be natural agitation between you and other believers because there's no fellowship between light and darkness. We have to take these things very seriously. We're called to live and obey His commandments because we are meant to display His character. And that not only means that we are called to obey them for our own salvation, but also to teach others to do likewise. If we choose to reject this responsibility, we are choosing to reject God's design for all of creation. Owning your faith is not just about finding a random person on the street to tell about Jesus. It's about making the conscious decision every single day to abide in Him. To be completely um, enveloped in, his, in, in who He is. To be okay with whatever He calls us to do. Whether it's have a conversation with a random homeless person or to have a deep conversation with someone that we care about. Or to give our, our spouse some space so that they can find what God has for them and the challenge that they're facing. Here's what I want to, want to leave you with today. Just like Tiffany's has architected an intentional way to make their jewels shine, God has also architected a unique way to put you on display. And how you choose to embrace that responsibility will have a direct impact not only on yourself, but also on those that are in your life. God is rich in His mercy, and He is kind and He is just. But we have a responsibility to follow Him and to not to um, absolve ourselves of that responsibility. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.